All right, uh, I want to play a quick game as we uh, get into the sermon this morning, just to kind of uh, help us with all the information that we've received. So the game's real simple. Um, no, it's not dodgeball and it's not eating pizza. So the game's real simple. Um, I'm going to read a, a quote, and you need to tell me whether that is a verse from the Bible or a line from a movie. So real simple. A verse from the Bible or a line from, the, from a movie. And if you guess it right, you get a point. And then if you can tell me where the verse is from or where the mo- what the movie is, I'll give you a thousand points for those who are competitive and want to keep score. So, um, all right. So the first one, uh, listen up. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come here and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Bible. All right. That's Bible. Anyone for a thousand points can tell me where that is. First Samuel 17, He's, there's a Bible kid, there you go. Uh, that's, Dave, that's Goliath, that's Goliath uh, sh- uh, hurling abuse at David as he's about to go into battle. That's, that's, uh, sorry, that's Goliath hurling abuse at David. Did I say that? Okay, I thought I got them wrong. All right, next one. What we do in life echoes in eternity. At my, single, at my signal, unleash the forces of hell. Bible or movie? Movie. All right. Well done. Can anyone guess the movie? Gladiator. Gladiator. A thousand points to James. That's, that's Maximus, sometimes known as Russell Crowe uh, in the movie Gladiator. All right. Next one. A day may come when the courage of men fails. When we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand. Bible or movie? Movie, Return of the King. Well done. Rachel, 1,001 points. Well done. All right, last one, and then we're moving on. These men are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. That's a Bible verse. Believe it or not, that's a Bible verse. The Assyrians were attacking the Israelites And the field commander of the king of Assyria started to taunt the Israelites by telling them that they are doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. It is actually a real Bible verse. This is a fun way to kind of introduce what I want to speak on today, because all of the last four examples are examples of what are known as boasts. And boasts are typically used in a military context where uh, the person going into battle will assure himself and those that he is with that they have reason to be confident in victory. Or, and that's exactly what Goliath was doing when he was fighting David. When he said to David, you know, come at me and, and I will take your flesh and I will feed you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, not only is he taunting the Israelites, not only is he jeering them, but he's reminding himself that he has reason to be confident that he is going to prevail in this battle. He's reminding Israel, but reminding himself that the Israelites don't have nine foot tall soldiers like he is, and therefore there is no way that they are going to win. He's boasting in his own strength. He's boasting and placing his confidence in his strength. I love David's response to Goliath. David says this in response, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. Basically what David says is, Goliath, you have your strength, I have my God. 
And my God is the Lord Almighty. My God is the one who, who has, has moved in great power in my life and delivered me from the lion and delivered me from the bear. And he's going to do exactly the same as I come up against you. You see, David is doing the exact same thing that Goliath is. David is boasting just as much as Goliath. But David is boasting in the Lord where Goliath is boasting in his own strength. When we think about boasting today, we don't often think about it in a positive light. We think it's prideful and arrogant and self-centered, and often we think it's childish, and, and most of the times it actually is. But if we start to realize exactly what boasting is, when we realize that, that boasting actually is a declaration of where our confidence lies, a statement of where our hope is and, and where do we find our worth and our identity and, and who or what is, is our anchor and our rock and our sure footing. When we realize that that is actually what boasting is, then we realize, or I think we're going to start to realize, that, that boasting actually does have some redemptive value. Boasting can be used in a gospel sense and it actually can release kingdom power, which is the very reason Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, he says this, but far be it for me to boast. He's saying, I'm not going to give myself to boasting. I'm not going to give myself to proclaiming my strength in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. As James mentioned, we, we are coming into land. We're bringing our near, uh, eagerly desired series around the gifts of the Spirit into land. Uh, next Sunday, James is going to be ending the, the sermon series. But uh, uh, during the last kind of 11 weeks or so, we, we intentionally started with speaking about what it means to be a believer of Jesus Christ who is filled by the Spirit of God and living a life that, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And next Sunday, James is going to kind of bring the series full circle, and he's going to speak about spiritual churches, spiritual communities, uh, individuals, people of God coming together in these outposts of heaven to, to show the world what it looks like that when, when we have Jesus as our King. And, and we are to, as we've been doing, as we've been teaching, uh, encouraging each of you not just to learn about the gifts, not just to kind of embrace some intellectual information about the gifts, but, but I hope that you have done the very thing that the sermon series title has invited you to do, and that is to eagerly desire the gifts, or as Mark put it last week, to, to passionately pursue the gifts of the Spirit. You see, when we begin to operate and steward the gifts of the Spirit wisely and, and, and thoughtfully and graciously and humbly, we begin to see the people of God ministered to. They start to embrace and understand the grace and goodness of God. They, they start to grow up in Jesus Christ. They, they, they start to get an indication of God's will and God's nature. And the amazing thing is when God uses us to steward those gifts, we ourselves are encouraged. So the gifts are something that, yes, we absolutely need to eagerly desire. But can I say we must never boast in the gifts? We must never find our worth or our value or our identity or, or, or think that because we operate in a certain gift, that gives me the confidence to come boldly before the Lord. The gifts of the Spirit are never the anchor on which we stand. We eagerly desire them, but we never boast in them because today I want to share about something or someone who is far greater and that is the one in whom we are to boast. I want to share 
in a series on the gifts of the Spirit about something that really doesn't have much to do with the gifts of the Spirit. But I'm doing that intentionally because I'm speaking about the one that the gifts come to serve. And that one is Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace that he has made known to us through his death and resurrection from the cross. So what caused Paul to write in Galatians 6, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why does Why does Paul think that boasting can actually be virtuous? Why is he encouraging us to to actually boast in a a helpful way in in Jesus Christ and in his cross? And to answer that, we are going to do a quick overview of the book of Galatians because the book of Galatians is is such a powerful book when it comes to understanding and, and learning about the goodness and the grace of God. Don't turn there in your Bibles. There's going to be tons of scripture that, that is going to come up behind you and, and you can follow along with me by just... Um, reading the verses behind me. 13 years after Paul encountered Jesus in a radical way that transformed his life forever, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 9, Paul then uh, uh, begins, uh, 13 years later, begins to journey with his friend Barnabas through the province of Galatia, what is now known as southern Turkey. And, And to every single town that they visit, he, that both Paul and Barnabas begin to preach the gospel begin to make Jesus known, begin to plant local communities or local churches because people are getting saved, and they place elders or leaders in, into those particular churches. Can I just say as a little aside, as we're about to plant another church um, at the end of this month, church planting is never done in order to better care for the sheep that, or the people that God has already added. Church planting is not, a, is, not a, is not a pastoral care strategy. Church planting is a strategy in the hopes of seeing more people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the reason why we plant churches. So Paul has established these churches and placed leaders in place, and eventually he makes his way back to Antioch, which is the, the base church in which he, he is, is part of. And he begins to hear uh, feedback from these churches about certain things that are happening at these churches. And Paul is absolutely fuming and livid at what he is hearing. And he begins to write what is undoubtedly the most uh, uh, clear and strong rebuke that has ever been recorded in Scripture. He says something like this to the Galatians, you crazy Galatians. Did someone put a spell on you? Have you taken leave of your senses Something crazy must have happened, for it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. Let me put this question to you. How did you begin your new life? Was it by working your heads off to please God, or was it by responding to God's message of grace to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough, Or strong enough to begin with, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It's not a total loss yet. But it certainly will be if you keep this up. I wish these agitators, those people who have bewitched you, obsessive as they are about circumcision, would just go the whole way and castrate themselves. That's literally what Paul writes in the book of Galatians. You can tell he was a little bit angry. But it begs the question, what has happened? What has happened in the church in Galatia that caused Paul to be so angry and so frustrated? 
Well, there's two essential things that, that happened that caused Paul's response. The first thing was that for some reason, the Jewish believers were refusing to eat with the Gentile believers. And Peter, or Cephas, who was one of the key leaders in the church at the time, was actually encouraging this to happen. Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 2. And you'll see the passage behind me. I just want to quickly read it. Just getting through a bit of scripture initially, and then we'll make some comments. This is what Paul writes about the Jews not eating with Gentiles. But, but when Cephas, when Peter came to Antioch, that's where Paul was based, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So before men came down from Jerusalem, Peter, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, when the Jewish converts came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing, that the, circumcis- fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party are, the, are, are a sect of those Jewish believers who insisted that Gentiles be circumcised in order to become full members of the body of Christ. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel of truth, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Essentially, what he's saying to Peter is, if you are free under the grace of God, how dare you put standards and bondage of rule-keeping for, for people to live according to your rules. The question that is being asked is, or, or the statement of, that, of, of that, those verses is, is, Peter, you know better. Don't come under the bondage of law. You've been set free by the grace of God. Stay free. The second issue, the first issue, the Jews weren't eating with the Gentiles, but the second issue was that Gentiles, for some reason, were believing teaching by certain Jewish uh, uh, you know, by certain Jewish converts, that they needed to be circumcised in order to come into the full family of God. Another little lengthy piece of scripture, but bear with me. Galatians chapter 5, Paul deals with this. He says, for freedom, for freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery, slavery to a system of rule-keeping. We don't live under a system of rule-keeping. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. In other words, if you are trying rule-keeping, you are literally cutting yourself off from Jesus. Think about that, friends. If we try to please God by keeping rules, we are cutting ourselves off from the grace of God that is available to us through the person of Jesus Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. In Christ, human standards have zero value. But only, what is important, is only faith working through love. So these were the two issues that the church in Galatia 
churches in Galatia were facing. The fact that Jews were not eating with Gentiles and Gentiles for some reason were believing that they needed to be circumcised in order to be added to the family of God. I heard one commentator say this, the two issues facing the church in Galatia were food and foreskins. And it's a simple way of kind of summarizing the whole thing. And when we, when we summarize it like that, we think to ourselves, but this sounds so trivial. You know, I mean, you know, they, this, the churches, they love Jesus. You know, surely this is stuff that they could work out in time to come. Let's give them 10 years and they could kind of figure this out. Why is Paul so livid? Is it, is it worthy of Paul writing such a, a strong letter? And I want to say, yes, it is. Let me give you an example. Let me invite you to, to kind of imagine with me a scenario where you would be in a situation that would, might make you as livid as Paul is. This is a variation of an example I, I, I read by a, a, a British author, N.T. Wright, who was writing a commentary on the book of Galatians. I'm from the nation of South Africa that unfortunately is known for apartheid. I want you to imagine that you are a missionary in South Africa in the 70s or 80s when apartheid was running at its its most extreme. And you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are looking for a way to reflect the reality that, that races should not be divided but should come together in Jesus Christ. And so as part of your, as part of your uh, intention, as part of your mission, you decide to oppose what the governments are doing, and the governments are building schools that segregate people along racial lines. You are going to build a school that actually brings races together. And so very intentionally, you, you build a school with a single classroom per grade, and you build bathrooms, uh, boy and girl bathrooms that are, that are not divided on on race issues, and there is one single playground, and there's one single cafeteria, and, and, and you've, you build a school, and you raise up a leadership team, and you place a board of governors to, to, to look after the school, and you move on to your next project. And then, about a year or two later, you begin to hear that certain people from the government of the country have infiltrated the board of governors. And they've started to convince them that Kosa kids can't learn appropriately alongside white kids. And Zulu kids can't be mixed with white kids because that wouldn't be right. And so the school starts to divide along racial lines. And the classroom that was once unified is now divided. And the bathrooms are not divided on gender lines, but they're divided on race lines. And suddenly there are three playgrounds for the kids to play in to keep black kids away from white kids. How would you feel if that happened to the school that you built? You would be livid. You would be, you would be fuming. You would say something far worse than I hope those, those agitators would castrate themselves. You would say something far worse than that. And that's why Paul is so livid when he gets news of this because food and foreskins, as trivial as it sounds, is, is foundational to the reality of the gospel of grace. When we, when we divide along ethnic lines or divide along whether we are adhering to certain human standards, we are dismissing the grace of God. Dividing along ethnic lines is essentially a question of in what do you boast? Where is your confidence? Where is your anchor? Are you confident? Are, are, Is your boast in the fact that you are adhering to certain human standards? 
And that's what the Jews were asking the Gentiles to do. They were saying to them, listen, you can only have confidence and you can only boast if you boast in the reality that you are adhering to Jewish ethnic laws. And until you do so, we refuse to eat with you. That's not the gospel of grace, friends. We are not saved by human standards. We are not saved by ethnic rules. We are not saved by living a life of rule keeping. Jesus, it says in in, um, John chapter three, verse 16, "For, for God so loved the world. Jesus died that all people would come to know him as Lord and Savior. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, reconciliation, us with God, was initiated by God. For God, for God, so loved. He was moved by by love and and compassion for the world. For God so loved the world that he, he gave, he gave up the very thing that was most dear to him his one and only son, and all that he asks in response is simply for us to believe in his son. Not for us to to adhere to certain rules or rituals or do this or do that or jump through these hoops, but simply to put our faith in the son of the Lord Most High, Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's what's available to you and I if we believe in this Son of God, Jesus Christ. Eternal life, not one day when we die, but eternal life this side of death. Life and life everlasting. To separate Jew and Gentile at the dinner table. Now think about the context of Middle Eastern biblical culture where where enjoying a meal together was the epitome of friendship and relationship. To separate Jew and Gentile at the meal table was to deny the grace of God. And can I say, the denial of God's grace is what causes division in the world. The denial of God's grace, the fact that one race or one sex or one economic group can be better than the other, is a, is, it happens when we deny the grace of God, that all of us are equal, equally in need of a Savior and are saved by His kindness only, not anything we can do to earn that. That's why reconciliation, friends, is so essential to the gospel. In Jesus, you and I are first reconciled, us with the Father, and then us with one another across lines that typically divide. Male, female, black, white, rich, poor, whether I speak in tongues or whether I don't speak in tongues. In Jesus, we are reconciled as one. Paul speaks about that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you as you have been placed into Christ have, have clothed yourself with the person of Jesus Christ. Just like each and every one of us got dressed this morning to come to church. Every day, the Bible teaches we are clothed in the person of Jesus Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male 
and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise of God. Can I say, friends, in the church of Jesus Christ, under the grace of God, there is no room for division and disunity of any kind. Whether it's on on racial grounds, whether it's on issues of gender, whether it's on social or economic issues, or whether it's on you operate powerfully in the gifts of the Spirit, or you are struggling to believe. There is no space under the grace of God for us to be divided. And can I say, friends, the importance of personal repentance. The personal repentance has national significance. When I come before God and I personally repent of of, of truths that are counter to this word, let me tell you, there is national significance in that because I begin to operate in a counterculture to the world according to the grace of God's word, and it has national ramifications. Don't dismiss personal repentance as something that's little. No, it is powerful when we surrender ourselves to the truth of God's grace. It's a little heavier. Let's, bring, let's make it a little bit light. A little bit. Uh, I bought some Starbucks cups to illustrate a point. I've got a, a venti, a grande, and a tall. I want to talk about how Paul goes after this reality of grace. But he does so in a very interesting way. He, he goes after grace in a way where he deals with it at three different levels. He deals with it at a personal level, grace as it impacts you and me. But then he also goes after grace at a a corporate or a kind of community level, grace as it impacts the people of God. But we are part of the people of God. And then thirdly, he goes after grace in a kind of cosmic, from the beginning of time to the end of time kind of way. And we, as part of the people of God, fall into this kind of cosmic understanding of how God, or how, how Paul deals with grace and how God deals with grace. It's the same sort of way we used the illustration earlier of the Lord of the Rings. And uh, I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings kind of um, aficionado, so forgive me if I get some of the terms wrong. But one thing I do know that the Lord of the Rings is not just a story about some hairy-toed hobbit who, who kind of uh, journeys towards, is it Mount Doom, with a bunch of his friends and then turns around and comes back. I mean, it is to some degree... But it's far deeper than that, isn't it? It's about the survival of the various groups, the hobbits. Are they a race or a, I don't know, the, the, the race of the hobbits and the, and the elves and the dwarves. Sorry if I'm offending um, Tolkien fans. I really am trying my best here. Um, so so it's, not just about, it's not just about Bilbo. It's not just about the survival of, did I say it wrong? Frodo, Frodo of course. Bilbo is um, the hobbit. That's right. It's not just about Frodo. It's not just about the elves and the dwarves and and the people of men, but there's a far bigger story. It's the reality of Middle Earth. Is Middle Earth going to survive? And it will only survive unless the ring is cast away. You see, it's dealt with at three different levels. So let's, with that in mind, let's read Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Because of God's grace, we we enjoy freedom at a personal level. 
you and I who are believers in Jesus Christ are are no longer slaves, no longer slaves to to a world of system and and rule keeping. But the Bible says right there, we are are no longer slaves, but we are sons and daughters of God and therefore heirs to an inheritance that is in Jesus Christ. That's powerful. But it's far deeper than that. There's a corporate freedom. The Bible, right those verses say, it says we are redeemed and rescued from a life of rule keeping. What defines the people of God? What defines the church of Jesus Christ? The fact that you and I follow certain rules? No. The fact that you and I outwork faith in the context of love. The fact that you and I are called by the Spirit of God to keep in step with the Spirit. That's what defines the people of God. But it's even way bigger than that. Because Paul goes on to say, but when the time had fully come... God sent his son Jesus into the world. Galatians chapter one, Paul says, Jesus didn't just come to wipe away our sins, as significant as that is, and I thank God that my sins have been cleansed. But he came to rescue us from this present evil age. This present evil age. The people of God. I am saved by grace. All fit one into the other. I am filled by the spirit of God. I'm born again I'm filled by the Spirit of God. By God, by the Spirit of God, I cry out, Abba, Father. I get to experience the reality of what it means to be a son of God. But I'm not just an individual Christian all alone. I'm part of the people of God. I'm part of a community of, of, of heaven, little outposts of heaven scattered across the world, showing the world what it looks like when Jesus is king, ministering to one another in the gifts of the Spirit. But it's far bigger than that. Because we are part of this universal church, the church of Jesus Christ that has been gathering before his throne since the beginning of time and is gathering right now in heaven. People from every tribe and every nation and every tongue are worshiping before the throne of Jesus, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When we gather on a Sunday, friends, we're not just singing worship songs with a bunch of friends. We are gathering with the universal church that is already meeting in heaven and we are proclaiming that Jesus is king and is coming back for us. It's not just this level. It's not even just this level, but it's each one fitting into the next. So the gospel is not just about food or foreskins. The gospel is not just about human standards and rules. The gospel is about faith in God. The gospel is about forgiveness from the Father. The gospel is about being part of a diverse family with God's people. The gospel is about freedom from slavery. The gospel is about manifesting fruit of the Spirit. And the gospel is about living constantly under the favor of heaven. Our boast, our confidence is not in the flesh. It's not in living up to human standards or being wise enough to problem solve a a, a job situation or leaning on the fact that you have an impressive resume to get to to the next stage of the interview. We don't find our worth and our value in the things that the world finds its worth and value in. Our boast, our confidence, our anchor is in the Lord. In fact, Paul says it even even in in greater detail. It's not just in the Lord. It's in the Lord in whom, sorry, it says, I boast, far be it for me to boast, except not just in the Lord, but in the cross of Jesus Christ. Our confidence is in Jesus at his weakest. Our boast is in Jesus 
dying on the cross. Out there, friends, the world will boast in many things. Their strength, their good looks, their degrees, their bank accounts, their wisdom. And I want to say, friends, that has little value in the context of eternity. We boast in the shame and the ridicule and the vulnerability and the ultimate death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And through that death, everything and the, uh, that, that the devil and the world will throw at us has been crucified to us and us to the world. We celebrate in the reality that, Jesus, that God, in his infinite wisdom, took someone at his absolute worst, death, and brought about ultimate victory. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, he says, he says this, he says, he says, remember Jesus Christ, descended from David, raised from the dead. This is my gospel. Think about that. Remember Jesus Christ, descended from, uh, remember Jesus Christ, descended from David. God made a promise to David that he would have one of his uh, uh, sons uh, in his lineage would serve faithfully on the throne of Israel. And for generation after generation, there was unfaithful king after unfaithful king until Jesus Christ came. And I want to say, friends, there are some of us sitting here who are holding on to the promise of God. And for generation after generation, as it seems, there is, it, it, it seems impossible for God to break through. But I want to say, if God has made the promise like he made that, that Jesus would be descended from David, your promise will prevail. Because God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Remember Jesus Christ, descended from David, risen from the dead. Are you in a situation where it looks like your promise is as good as dead? Your situation is as impossible as as it is to be resurrected from the dead? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The world's anchor is not like ours. The world's rock is not like our rock. We worship on a Sunday morning. And what we are doing on a Sunday morning, friends, let me tell you, is we are boasting in the Lord. We sing songs like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Or this incredible hymn, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. What should I gain? Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Or those of us who may be not familiar with hymns, but a a modern song, I was singing this song yesterday while I was going for a run. Let me tell you, Don't run and worship. It's not helpful for the body. I thought, I hoped to be carried by the Spirit as I was worshiping, and I was not. I was worshiping in the Spirit and running very much in the flesh because I ended up doing a mile in about seven and a half minutes, and I was exhausted. But nonetheless, I was singing this song at the top of my lungs yesterday. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. That's a boast. 
We're boasting in the fact that we cannot do anything except stand in front of this Red Sea and the Egyptian army coming upon us and we cry out to the Lord, my God has done this. He split the sea so that I could walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescued me so that I could stand and sing. I am a child of God. That's, in who, that's who we boast in, friends. Can I just say as an aside, that's why worship is so essential on a Sunday morning. Worship is not just the prelude to the sermon. We are, when we worship, the main thing we're doing is we're glorifying God. But this is what we're doing. We're doing a version of what Goliath was doing to David. We're doing a version of what David did to Goliath. We're reminding ourselves of, whom, of where our strength lies. And we're reminding the devil that our victory is assured because we're trusting in God. Our boast is our identity. It's where we find our worth and our value. There are many things that we can boast in, friends. And I've listed them, wealth and wisdom and prosperity and jobs and relationships. And we can even boast as a church or as people, that we operate in the gifts of the Spirit. But there is someone far greater in which our confidence lies. We must eagerly desire the gifts because through the gifts we minister to one another, we release the life of God, people get ministered to, they get to see Jesus for who he is. We must eagerly and passionately pursue the gifts, but we must never boast in them because our boast is in the Lord. Our boast is in the victory that he achieved on the cross and the access that we get to God's constant grace and favor because of what Jesus has done. Can we close our eyes for a moment and we're gonna close in some prayer. I don't think time allows for us to go into a time of worship. I was hoping that we could do that, but I want us just to take a moment to just reflect for a few moments on the incredible truths that I trust we've learned today from the word of God the power of the gospel that we are saved not by human sta- or adhering to human standards. The fact that, is that we are saved by the undeserved and unmerited grace of God. Those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior today, can I ask you just where you are seated to just quietly under your, under your breath, just thank the Lord for the incredible goodness of his grace the power of the gospel that our confidence rests in the death and resurrection of Jesus it doesn't make sense that our boast is in Jesus at his weakness but that's the truth of the gospel he rose again after three days and is now seated at the Father's right hand in glory. Just as every eye is closed, maybe there are some of you here today. If I had to ask you, where is your confidence? In what do you boast before the Father? Do you boast in your own strength? In your religious achievements? In the good things that you've done to others? The Bible teaches that's Those are rags. Our confidence needs to be in Jesus. His death and resurrection on the cross. 
If you're here today and you're saying, Steve, I want to know Jesus. I thought I did by, by, by being religious and trying my best, but, but I want to know this Jesus that sets me free. I want to know this Jesus so that I can become a son or daughter of the Lord Most High and become an heir of an unshakable kingdom. You might not understand it all. It might not make f- complete sense to you. But that's okay because every single one of us are still on a journey of learning more and more about the the fullness of what this gospel is. But if you're here today saying, Steve, I want to know Jesus today. I want to pray that prayer where Jesus comes into my heart. I'm going to ask you quickly to lift up your hand and I would love to lead you in a prayer right where you are seated where you can say, Jesus, would you come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior? Would anyone like to respond to that? Jesus, thank you for the incredible good news of the gospel. Just as we close this morning, can I just ask that we continue just to be in a place of prayer. We're gonna be finished in two minutes. I just felt as I was praying this morning that there are some people that are standing before situations and circumstances and I love the fact that it came through during our worship time already with that beautiful word that Amelia brought about the Lord Jesus being like a lion roaring over us and then Deb's mentioned or picked up on the thing of breakthrough. But I feel like for some, you are literally standing in front of a closed sea and you need the Lord to split the sea. You need the Lord to make a way. It might be a, it might be a project at work that you are facing and you don't know how to deal with it. It might be an issue with your boss that you need to figure out. It might be, it might be a, a, a financial crisis that you are facing and you just don't know how to, how to make ends meet. It might be a ministry opportunity that seems impossible, but you know the Lord has spoken. It, it could be a myriad of things, but I believe there are some of you standing literally before a closed sea. And I just feel today the Lord wants to split that sea so that you can walk through it. I feel the Lord today would, 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 would want to ask you, where does your confidence lie? In whom or in what are you boasting? I believe the Lord wants us to remember that we boast in Him and in Him alone. Maybe some of you here are feeling incredibly weak and overwhelmed by situations and circumstances. Maybe physically. Maybe there's issues of sickness or, 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 or illness. But maybe it's just an, an being overwhelmed by the devil kind of feeling weak. The song that we were going to sing, Cornerstone, speaks about God in Jesus, the weak are made strong. And I want to pray for you today, either for for seas to split or for weak people to to be made strong. Lord Jesus, I pray right now. Lord, we thank, I thank you that we don't have to work you up, but we can simply pray in the name of Jesus and trust for you to do what only you can do. And so Father, I ask in Jesus' name for seas to be split in Jesus' name. For seas to be split, for mountains to be destroyed, for Goliaths to come crashing down in Jesus' name. And Father, I pray for strength. I pray for wisdom. I pray for heavenly insight in, 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 in business situations, in financial situations, in job situations, in relationships, for the weak 
to be made strong in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.